Welcome to Conversations On, where the YMCA of the North engages with local and national leaders about their experiences, their insights, and their aspirations. I'm Rashini Rajkumar. In today's episode, CEO Glenn Gunderson chats with Tony Dungy, iconic NFL coach and former NFL player who became the first black head coach to win a Super Bowl. Find out what's even more important to Tony than his 2007 Super Bowl victory. Well, Tony Dungy, it is such a pleasure to be with you. I am honored for you to be a guest here. And frankly, I've been uh, admiring you for a long time as a leader for good. And one of the things we share is a faith. Uh, and, and, and that has been so inspiring to see how you've led through your faith. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about your upbringing in Jackson, Michigan, and what that was like as a young person. And then we'll carry from there. Well, Glenn, I think I got the best upbringing uh, that anyone could have. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Grew up in a little, small, industrial town. Everybody kind of took care of everybody else. A lot of people were related in some way or another, uh, but it was an automotive town. My parents, however, happened to be teachers. Uh, my dad was a uh, college professor. He taught junior college biology and science. My mom was a high school English and Shakespeare and public speaking teacher. Uh, so education was really important in our house. But more than that, I, I think they gave us a background in how the Lord wants you to work, uh, that, that life was more than just where you worked or what you did. Uh, it, it was really who you are and how you carried yourself. Uh, my mom was the Sunday school teacher. My grandfather was a, a Baptist minister. Two of my dad's brothers were ministers. So I heard the stories. I, I got the, the background early on, but I also got to see people who lived that out and, and showed me the right way to go. And, and my parents were just, they, they were my heroes and uh, they'd remain that way. Hmm. I also grew up in a small town to a couple of educators. So I love that, that wow. shared history as well. What for you, was it like growing up as a young black man? How much did race show up in the conversation uh, within your household? You know, it was really interesting. Um, when I was born, we lived in a predominantly white neighborhood, white area of Jackson. My dad, uh, when I was in uh, third grade, he wanted to finish his PhD work. So we moved on the campus of Michigan State University. That was multi cultural then we lived in the married housing we had people foreigners we had uh people from all over there and so you didn't really think anything of it um you, i had friends of all different backgrounds well then when i was in sixth grade i moved back to jackson my dad uh, continued his his teaching and now for the first time i realized i, I lived in an all-black neighborhood uh, and this was in 1967 1968 um, we built a new high school. Um, people from my neighborhood got bused out to the new high school, which was predominantly white. And that was really my first experience with we and they and, you know, divisions and that kind of thing. And it, it was really strange. And of course, my parents had taught me just the opposite, that you, everybody's the same. You treat everyone like you'd want to be treated. And then uh, two years later, two springs later, Dr. King is assassinated and everything's going on. Um, it, it, was a, it was a difficult experience growing up. Uh, I do remember very, as a very young boy watching on a little small black and white TV with my dad. And these two African-American students were trying to enroll at the University of Alabama. And George Wallace 
was the governor at the time. And I remember watching with my dad and him saying, we'll never have Negro students is how they called it back then. We'll never have Negro students at this school. And I remember asking my dad, what is, what's going on? What is this all about? And he said, well, there's some places and some people who aren't gonna like you because of what you look like. But for us, we don't do that. We don't buy into that. And I don't ever want you to think that way. And uh, those were the, my earliest memories. And, and fortunately I had parents that taught me the right way. Do you recall as a young person when Martin Luther King was killed, assassinated, um, uh, I think I've read that you had some conversations uh, more deeply with your father, Wilbur, at that point. Can you share a little I, bit about that? I remember that? The, the day it happened uh, like it was yesterday. Uh, I was 12 years old. I'm living there in Jackson, and I've kind of started to experience this and, you know, people talking black and white and knew who Dr. King was. And I remember watching uh, on television the reports of his death in Memphis. And I remember walking around saying, that is so sad. And, and hearing people say they killed him, they shot him because he was black. And then uh, some of my relatives living in Detroit, calling my dad and saying, gosh, there's everything going on. This neighborhood's on fire. This is on fire. And it was just so hard for a young boy to picture that. Um, but I, again, my mom and dad saying, hey, when you do the right thing, when you stand up for the Lord, uh, everybody's not always going to like it and you are going to get attacked in certain ways and that's why dr king was attacked for doing the right thing and, and if you are going to be attacked you want to be attacked for doing the right thing not the wrong thing you know your parents uh were pioneers pioneers throughout your family and certainly you follow on with some amazing pioneering of your own but your dad's uh involvement with the tuskegee airmen uh is something i had a chance to dig into a little bit you reflected on in one of your books uh, would you share uh, how you learned about that and uh, what you have come to understand since? Yeah, it's totally, uh, you know, shocking. I can put all the pieces together now that I know what happened. But uh, my dad, I knew he was in the service. Uh, you know, he had talked about enlisting. And, and so I knew that uh, he graduated from high school in 1944. So I knew mm -hmm. it was around World War II. Uh, but that's really all I knew. And there were times when I would say, growing up later, say that something was unfair, or the teacher didn't give me the right grade, or the coach didn't get me in, or the quarterback didn't throw me the ball. <laughs> you know, <laughs> something is not fair. And anytime I would say that, my dad would always say, well, life isn't always fair. There was a time they didn't want us to fly, so we had to teach ourselves. Mm. Sometimes you have to teach yourself to fly. And I knew what he was getting with that. Hey, you can complain, you can be in, in the tank, or you can work on doing something to make it better. And that was all, always his thing. How are you going to make the situation better? So I knew that. I knew he was in the service. I know he talked about teaching yourself how to fly. But it wasn't until his funeral in 2004 that um, a gentleman stood up that people were talking about him and, and this gentleman said, yeah, we're so proud of Will Dungey when he went into the Air Force and joined the Tuskegee Airmen. Hmm. And my sister and brother and I just were like, what? <laughs> That's what he was talking about all those years. That's what he meant about teaching yourself to fly. And then we got some memorabilia and we saw some pictures of him and it was so stunning. But um, he, he just, um, it wasn't something he talked about a lot. 
he wasn't a braggadocious guy. As a matter of fact, uh, Lovey Smith, who worked with me in Tampa for, for many years as, as our linebacker coach, he used to talk to my dad every Friday at practice. And um, when someone told him my dad had a PhD, he said, I've known your dad for eight years. I've never heard anybody refer to him as Dr. Dungey. And I said, he just never did call himself that. He didn't think he, he called him, introduced himself as Will Dungey. And that's the way he was. And uh, he said, do you know how rare that is? You know, African-American PhDs at that time. And I said, yeah, I, I do. But I never had any idea about the Tuskegee Airmen until his, his funeral. You know, that must be where you got some of that humble servant leadership. What a great story and a great <laughs> lesson, I think, for all of us, right? To think about how do we, you know, how do we serve without um, that desire to be honored or recognized yeah. in return? And and yet you were recognized and honored. You were a great high school athlete uh, and you come to the University of Minnesota. And I appreciate, Coach, those colors that you're wearing today as a yeah. lifelong Golden Gopher <laughs> fan. Um, in fact, I can attest that in 1975, I think it was late November, I attended my first ever Golden Gopher football game with my uh. grandfather, who was a 1941 Golden Gopher graduate. And uh, you were on that field doing some amazing things. So I can say that you're one of my first heroes as a young aspiring uh, athlete. What was it like coming to the University of Minnesota at that time? And how did race show up there? I would imagine the dynamics were quite interesting, perhaps coming from, uh, from Jackson to Minneapolis. Well, it was, and even the, the journey to get there. Um, I grew up, I was always kind of in a leadership role. I was a shortstop on the baseball team, uh, point guard on the basketball team, quarterback. That's all I'd ever played. Well, I start to get recruited now uh, by different colleges, and I'm starting to visit different places. And some of the players, African-American players, are telling me, make sure they're recruiting you as a quarterback. There are some places that aren't going to have you play quarterback. And that's what I am. <laughs> I don't know how to play anything else. And surely I've got to be a quarterback. But then as I, I started to see it, um, Minnesota was different. Uh, Minnesota had a history of African-American leadership. Sandy Stevens, one of the reasons I went to the university, yeah. Sandy Stevens in the early 60s, African-American quarterback, led them to a national championship, Heisman Trophy finalist. And um, there was no question that I was going to play quarterback in Minnesota. Other places you didn't know. And this was in, in the early 70s. Um, so that was one of the reasons I chose the university. Uh, I got there and um, it was a different, uh, again, perspective for me. Huge campus, um, multicultural, big city. Uh, my eyes were, were wide open coming from a little small town in Michigan. No, I'm sure. And um, what was that experience like playing for Cal Stahl probably in those years? I did, yes. Uh, Coastal had been at Michigan State, not too far from my hometown. Uh, Duffy Doherty, as a matter of fact, was one of the pioneers of integration of, of football. Duffy had good friends uh, on his coaching staff in the 60s that uh, coached in the South. And mm -hmm. people would tell him, this is a great player here, but our school can't recruit him. I can't recruit him at North Carolina. And so you better take him. And of course, Minnesota had that, that history as well with Murray Warmet, the same way he had mm -hmm. come up from Tennessee and he's getting guys, Bobby Bell from Shelby, North Carolina, 
you know, who couldn't go to the University of North Carolina at that time, but becomes an All-American at Minnesota. So um, Coach Stahl was, he had a, a rich history and he talked about building a legacy and he talked about being uncommon. And that's something mm-hmm. I never forgot. The very first meeting we had as freshmen said, you can come here, you can be a C student, you can be an okay athlete, you'll get through, you'll have your scholarship paid for, and you'll be just okay if that's what you're looking for. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for people who want to be uncommon. I'm looking for people who want to be A students, who want to be Big Ten champions, who want to help Minnesota win a national championship. So you can do that by having exceptional talent, be gifted uh, in a way that God has given you something that many other people don't have, or you can be uncommon by having a drive and a desire that allows you to do things that everybody else could do, but most people won't. And I'll never forget that. That was 1977 or 1973. I'm sorry. 1973 as a freshman. And I wrote that down in my notebook. If that's what it takes to be uncommon, drive, desire to do what everybody could do, but most people won't. That's me. And I, I think that kind of described my career at Minnesota. I, I love working out. I love being a leader. I love working as hard as I could. I wanted to graduate. Jim Brewer was a a great basketball player in the early 70s, mm-hmm. uh, number one draft choice in the NBA. He just come back from the Olympics, and he talked about getting a degree and graduating in four years and not wasting your scholarship. And I said, that that's me. I want to do that, number one, and I, I want to help Minnesota win a national championship. Um, we didn't do that, but that was my drive and my desire, and uh, that fueled me in the, in the years I was there. Mm-hmm. You know, very few black quarterbacks at that time in, in the college ranks, uh, if, if, you know, certainly if not in the NFL. What was that like? Uh, what was your experience as a quarterback in those days? Well, uh, fortunately, at Minnesota, again, it, it wasn't rare. Uh, it had been done before, so mm-hmm. nobody looked at it that way. I didn't realize it, but around the country, it was looked at differently. And uh, I can remember, again, my senior year uh, in, in college. We played at the University of Washington. Hmm. I was uh, quarterback in the Gophers. I was leading the Big Ten in passing. And Washington had a quarterback by the name of Warren Moon. He was leading the Pac-8 at that time in passing. Uh, we played, and people were just astonished. These two quarterbacks throwing, African-American quarterbacks. And it was a big story. Uh, we didn't think too much of it at the time. Uh, my career ended up that year. I didn't get drafted. Uh, people said uh, you can go to the Canadian League and continue to play quarterback or you can go to the NFL, but it'll require a switch of position. Something inside me, I I know it was the Holy Spirit now, but something just said, hey, I want to go play with the best. So I had a chance to go to Montreal in the Canadian League, but I went to the Pittsburgh Steelers. I switched to safety. And uh, the next year, Warren Moon came out. He was faced with the same choice. He went to Canada. And played quarterback for Edmonton, won five Grey Cups, and became a Hall of Fame legend after he returned to the NFL. But for so many African-American quarterbacks at that time, that was the choice. Mm -hmm. Switch positions and stay in the NFL or go to Canada and continue to play quarterback. Yeah, interesting. So did you ever regret not going up to Canada and doing that, or was that transition to the NFL the right one? Sometimes, you know, you have that twinge. I wonder if I could have done what Warren did. If I went up there and played three or four years and lit it up, 
then I could come back and show them what I could do. But for me, it was really God's hand, I think, take me to Pittsburgh. I ended up playing for Chuck Knoll. We won a Super Bowl during the time I was there. Uh, he brought me back on the coaching staff. Uh, I got traded twice during my career, once to uh, the San Francisco 49ers, Bill Walsh's first year. Mm -hmm. And so I played on the championship team in Pittsburgh. I saw Coach Walsh build a championship organization in San Francisco. I'd been an offensive player my whole life. I switched to defense, learned that side of the ball and the pros. And then I got a chance to come back on Coach Knowles' coaching staff for eight years. He hired me when I was 25 years old. So I do know that God had a plan. Uh, but every now and then, I'll, especially when I'm around Warren, then I say, yeah, I wonder if I had done that, maybe, maybe I could have had that same career. You know, um, I mentioned earlier you as this leader for good. Who were the leaders for good, maybe aside from your parents, that really had an indelible impact on you and maybe helped drive you down this pretty remarkable leadership path? Well, I, a lot of men in, the, in Jackson growing up, a lot of guys who were five, ten years older than me, uh, looked over me like a little brother and, and guided me and, and I had some great mentors there. Uh, Coach Stahl was certainly a, a valuable part of my life. Tom Moore hmm. was my quarterback coach at, at the University of Minnesota. And then later on, we ended up coaching together with the Steelers on Coach Knowles' staff. And then Tom was my offensive coordinator uh, with the Colts when we won the Super Bowl. And he was instrumental. Matter of fact, Tom came and got me when I was a high school senior and rode with me on the plane. I'd never been on a plane before when I took my visit to Minnesota. And I was, uh, I was afraid actually to get on the plane. He said, I'll come back and sit with you. Um, so we, we've had a special relationship over the years. And then I got to the Steelers and Donnie Shell ended up being my roommate. Uh, Coach Noel put me in with him. He was a, a strong safety, great player. He'd been there four years. Coach said, you don't know a lot about defense. Stick with Donnie. He'll help you. He'll help you grow. And he did. He taught me about the game and the playbook. But more than that, he was just a dynamic Christian athlete. He was on fire for the Lord. And being in the dorm room with him, being in the hotel room on the road, uh, watching him, learning from him how to be a man, how to be a husband, how to be a father, uh, how to be a teammate, um, it, was, it was really, really special. Mm -hmm. When you, uh, you know, matricu matriculated up through those roles in the coaching ranks, the NFL, and then you get your first head coaching job with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, what was the reception like for you taking that job on? And how did the locker room respond? And, you know, that was a franchise that needed some, some retooling at the time. Uh, talk through yeah. that experience. Well, I had, uh, you know, coached at started at a very young age, coached eight years in Pittsburgh. Then I went three years to, to Kansas City. Now, by this time, I'm in my late 30s. We've had some pretty good defenses. And people are saying, just maybe this guy's going to be a head coach. Uh, and then in 1992, I come to Minnesota with Denny Green. And I'm, I'm coordinating the defense. In 1993, we had the number one defense in the NFL. And people are saying, gosh, if there's anybody who's ready to be a, a head coach, it's this guy. And I start getting interviews and I'm finishing second every time. Mm -hmm. And people are saying, what is it? Uh, and a lot of people attribute it to race. They just aren't ready for a black head coach. 
But I think for me, it was more of my personality, my demeanor, my Christian faith. A lot of owners at that time didn't think a mild-mannered, soft-spoken person could control these 47 high testosterone behemoths. And uh, they, they didn't have confidence that I could do it. I think more so than race, for me, it was that stereotype. Well, 1993 goes by, 94 goes by, 95 is going. And, and at the end of the 95 season, I got a chance to interview in Tampa. And Tampa had had a bad history, a long time losing. They'd had a tough racial situation with Doug Williams. He was their quarterback under John McKay, led him to the playoffs. And then in a salary dispute, they, they didn't pay him. And many of the black community just said, oh, this is racism. And they kind of turned off on the, on the Bucks at that time. So the Bucks were losing, didn't have a lot going in the black community. And I interview there and I'm not their first choice. Uh, Jimmy Johnson had just left Dallas. He had had a dispute with Jerry Jones. He was from Florida. He'd been very successful at the University of Miami. That's who they wanted. Well, he went back to Miami and went to the Dolphins. Their next choice was Steve Spurrier, very popular coach at the University of Florida. He had played for the Buccaneers, very glib guy, uh, media loved him. He was their second choice and he stayed at Florida. So now they're working on, gosh, we got to pick up the pieces. We didn't get the two guys we wanted. Who can we get? And I ended up being the third choice. Hmm. And uh, a lot of people, I think, thought at the beginning, well, this is the third choice. This isn't, isn't the guy we really wanted. So the reception from the fans was a little just lukewarm. But from day one, the players, um, the, the administration, people inside the building, total support. It was a great situation. And I had fun there, stayed there six years, got to the playoffs for the first time in a long, long time. We were a couple of plays away from the Super Bowl um, and, and had some great young men. So it was a, a wonderful experience. And you move on to Indianapolis and that experience culminates with a, a world championship, a Super Bowl championship. And that had to be quite an incredible experience and it's been well documented. What was the inspiration for you to move on from coaching. You're somebody who I hear uh, from many say, wow, he could be coaching today. Just that great vitality and energy and passion. But what was the inspiration to make a pivot? Well, I started so young. And so by the time we won our Super Bowl there, I'd coached 28 years, 26 wow. years. And uh, so I'd done it a long time. And I just kept having this thought that there's got to be something more that I can do. How can I really pour more into my community? Um, when I'm coaching, I'm definitely pouring into these 53 young men. I can do some things in the community, but I've got so much time invested right there in the, in the stadium at the building. Uh, there must be more. And so I was, uh, gosh, I think 53 years old. And uh, I, I did get into some community work in Tampa, all pro dad organization that I'm very proud of. Um, I got to work with a, a community outreach that, that reaches out to ex-offenders and, and prisoners and inmates. I uh, got, got a chance to do things with that, uh, speak for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, um, different things that I, I felt like I could impact my community a little bit more than just uh, coaching football. Hmm. You know, one of your adopted homes in Minneapolis, um, we went through it right in uh, the summer of 2020 and with the murder yeah. of George Floyd and 
all of the um, racial reckoning and social justice reckoning that that has has really um, continued uh, with Minneapolis being that global epicenter for the dialogue. Um, wh what was your thinking uh, when George Floyd was murdered? Did it surprise you? Where are you now? And where do you think we are as a culture now in terms of really bringing equity to the fore? And I'm particularly thinking about this as a leader at the Y. Yeah, no, as a culture, we've got a long ways to go. I was heartbroken and I, I was really shocked because that wasn't the Minneapolis that I remember. That wasn't the Twin Cities. Um, I, I was just stunned to hear the stories and people saying, well, this is, this is not an isolated incident. This isn't rare. We've got this friction here. And I've, you know, I've visited the Twin Cities in the last 20 years, um, but hadn't really lived there and spent a lot of time since I left the Vikings. And I, I just didn't remember it being that way. And, and so I, I think we've got a big job. We've got to come together and as my dad would say, what are we gonna to do to make the situation better? It's easy to complain and say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is not, not the way it should be. But I've gotta be an agent for making things right, for helping out, for bringing that dialogue and bringing that understanding together. And I think that's where we are as a country right now. Yeah, I think it's a strong encouragement. You know, we all can do more, right? And a big part of it for us at the Y is trying to pour in cultural competence and equity leadership perspectives into our young people, our families, our seniors, really all in our community. And so I guess I would ask uh, a, a couple more questions. One is, how do, you, um, how do you look to organizations like the YMCA and what would you be looking for from me? I'm a middle-aged white leader. And how, um, what are you counting on from leaders like me? Well, I'll tell you, one of my fondest memories growing up was playing basketball at the Y when I was 9, 10, 11 years old in East Lansing, Michigan, and going there and playing and not recognizing this guy's black, this guy's white. We're playing basketball. And uh, it was a place that you could go and have fun and enjoy. And I think they taught that hey, this is what life is about. It's teamwork and working together and improving and growing. And I think that's the message that we have to get across. And uh, I think as a leader at the Y, uh, don't feel restricted. Don't think, well, I'm only this, I'm a, a white guy, so I don't know. Uh, what, what it's about is teaching people how to work together and teaching people that everybody's the same. And um, I think the Y is one of the great places to learn that. Tony, uh, you've really exhibited some impressive leadership as a dad. Uh, and I'd love for you to speak about your role as father, you and your wife uh, getting involved in adoption as well. Uh, just talk about your role as a dad. Yeah, my, my dad and my mom were so special in my life, and I really feel like that's my number one role, uh, not as head coach or uh, as community leader, but how can I direct my kids in the same way my dad directed me? So we had three older kids. Um, and then we ended up adopting a, a little boy when I was in Tampa in 2000. And we just knew that this was God bringing another person into our family. It was just perfect situation. So we followed that up eight more times. And uh, we now have 11 kids all together. Um, I'm 66 years old. We've got a six-year-old <laughs> as our youngest one. So uh, it's, uh, it does stretch people's imagination when they see us all together. But I, I really feel like I'm doing the same thing that my dad did, just trying to direct them, trying to guide them, trying to be there when they have questions and trying to let them know that, you know what, 
you can do special things in, in this world. Uh, God's got special things for you. If you listen to him and follow him and work at it, but more than anything, if you'll submit to what he wants you to do, uh, you're going to be in good shape. So that's the message I'm trying to get across to all of our kids. Well, hey, you really inspire hope in me. You mentioned uh, that you made your big pivot as a career uh, professional at 53, and that number rings home real true for me right now at this moment. <laughs> so um, if you um, can you t uh, just share with our audience, you know, what gives you hope? What brings you hope as we look forward? A lot of dynamics that we're dealing with globally and nationally and right here in our communities uh, around the pandemic, around the racial pandemic dynamics we have. Yeah. But what brings you, Coach Tony Dungy, hope? I, I wrote a piece on social media after the George Floyd incident, and I, I said, hey, we're, we're a divided country right now. We're divided racially, socioeconomically, politically. And the hope is, to me is in Jesus Christ. Uh, the hope is uh, that we as Christians understand what God wants, and that's to reach out and be uh, welcoming to everybody and to point people to Christ and show people that, um, yeah, our human nature might be divided, but at the end of the day, we, we've got this bond uh, that, that that brings us together and we can do it. So that, that's my hope, that, that people will respond. Uh, and I think people do respond. When you're reaching out, when you're friendly, when you're welcoming, uh, it's hard for people to just shove away and, and push away. So uh, no matter what, and that's something I learned from my parents, no matter how you're treated, if you respond in a, a welcoming way, that, that's usually going to draw people to you. Yeah. Coach Tony Dungy, I'm so grateful for your time. You are a leader for good. Thank you. Well, thank you, Glenn. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to Conversations On, where the YMC of the North engages with local and national leaders, helping to inspire you.